Hello, Hello, and welcome welcome to Misinformation, a trivia trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to to annoying annoying teams teams at Pub Quiz. We're We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. (laughs) Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. We've done it. This is it. This is it. Our season two finale. I'm feeling euphoric. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Um, I'm feeling, uh, grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a little bit of, a little, uh, reminiscent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A little, little misty. Yeah. You know, it's been a great run. Yes. And, uh, we decided for our last episode for now. Yeah. We're going on an extended hiatus. If this is your first episode listening to us. That's a, sorry. Again, jumping in at episode 235 <laughs> is always, seems strange. It's always a risk. It is a risk. Please go back and, you know, listen to some of our hits. Um, I can't think of any right now, but no, we had yeah. some good ones back I there. I mean, I heard it. I heard we're very good. We're, I think we're very good. Uh, but we decided to revisit a classic, you and I, and uh, probably one of our more popular requests, at least, yes. um, was our cheese along episode. And so here we are. I'm sitting in your dining room, Julia, just like the first time. Sitting here with a bunch of cheese in front of us, ready to cheese along to Electric Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I was trying to think how we would stylize mm. cheese along. Like, where can I put the number two in there? Yes. Instead of like, maybe, maybe instead the of S? the L? Oh, I was oh, thinking no, the, 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 S. The, okay. the last S. Okay. So cheese. Cheat to E along. <laughs> yes. Duh. Electric Duh. Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo. Yes. I love it. Great. Perfect. <laughs> Here we are, guys. Here we are. Um, again, uh, I hope mouth sounds don't offend you. If if they do, maybe this isn't the Maybe episode. the Remedios Vero episode was your last episode <laughs> with us. And th- you know what? Thank you for your listenership. Yes. <laughs> but we thought, since this episode is coming out the week between Christmas and New Year's, yep. that tends to be a time where what is that you've that is that popular comic mm-hmm. that's like between christmas and new year's it's just you're full of cheese and yep. you don't know what day it is exactly and we thought we would <laughs> we would we would help you with yeah. that so our shopping list for this episode and we will share it obviously spell it out because some of these are hard to spell mm-hmm. um we got a yatos mm-hmm. a roquefort mm-hmm. a Smoked pepper jack. A smoked pepper jack. Yeah. Parmigiano Reggiano. Oh, you got me a Parmigiano Reggiano. <laughs> I'm going to just hold it in my hand the whole time. <laughs> the <entire> time. <laughs> so, as a true Italian is wont to do, just yes. gently cradle a Parmigiano <laughs> in their hand. You know, it's going to help my speech so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we, we have shared the list on. On various internet, um, social meds channel, yes, yeah, ha- hashtag, hashtag yatos, hashtag yatos, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to spell, guys. Um, so we hope that you might decide to cheese along with us. Please do. Um, so if you want to, we'll just pause it now, and you can come back after you go to the grocery store. Yeah, and you're back. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Is your cheese all unwrapped? Remember, you have to leave it out for an hour after taking it out of the fridge to make it 
as tasty as humanly optimal. possible. Yes, mm-hmm. because when things are too cold, mm-hmm. um, it kind of masks some of the compounds. Yes, of things, and it's the same thing with wine. Exactly, you gotta let it come to room, not to no. room temp, but a little. You bit don't want warmer. it to be too cold. No, you don't want Especially, it to be too cold. Yeah, but that's not for this episode. No, it's not. Today we're talking, we're talking about, about cheese. cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, up front, we in our first cheese along episode, we did a lot of history of cheese and mm-hmm. how cheese is made and all kinds of stuff. So um, definitely go back and brush up on that if you feel like it. But here we just have we're just covering a couple extra topics mm-hmm. up front. Um, so I found <laughs> a site. Okay, you're gonna laugh at the title. Okay, but it's good. The site is called The Cheese Wanker. No. And uh, they're in Australia and they have a great website dedicated to um, teaching people about cheese and a cheese shop and all this great stuff. So I got some great information from them on the eight basic types of cheese. Okay. Okay. So adapted adapted from their site. So first you have a fresh cheese. So that's things like cottage cheese or fresh chevre or queso blanco. So Mm -hmm. Um, you can kind of envision what that is like. There's not a lot of, it's not very salty. It hasn't been aged. Um, it's mild. Not, yes, very mild. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Next is a soft ripened cheese, also known as a bloomy rind cheese. Okay. So that's things like brie and camembert mm-hmm. and briette sevran. There's a soft washed rind cheese. These tend to be very stinky. Okay. Um, so that's like a Limburger or oh, maybe sure. a Munster or a Taleggio. So those are those are called soft washed rind cheeses. Then we have pressed uncooked cheeses. So those are things like cheddar and Gouda and Manchego. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty common in, yeah. in our realm. And there are also pressed cooked cheeses. So that means that the curds of the cheese are heated during production. So mm-hmm. that's things like Pecorino or Gruyere or Parmigiano Reggiano. Mm-hmm. There's also blue cheese, which mm-hmm. some of us are familiar with. Um, so things like Stilton or Gorgonzola or today's feature, Roquefort. There's whey cheese, which yes, ma'am. I didn't know anything about, but Lauren is really going to get into for us. Mm-hmm. So I won't I won't talk more about whey cheese because Lauren will cover that. And then there's also pasta filata, which is stretched curd cheese. So that's mm-hmm. things like mozzarella or provolone or queso Oaxaca. So those are cheeses where the curds end up getting stretched. So like a string cheese yeah. type thing. So mm-hmm. that's, um, that is considered different than some of the other types of cheeses. So those are ones to think about. Um, sure. When you build a cheese board, you kind of want to do a you know, a varying of things. And you mm-hmm. always hear that, that they want you to include a blue cheese on a cheese board. And some people are like, blue cheese is stinky. Blue cheese is dumb. I mean, it is stinky. I wouldn't say it's dumb. I mean, it doesn't have any intelligence <laughs> built into it. So that seems unfair to the blue cheese. <laughs> right. But it's nice to have there as a contrast. And so, mm-hmm. um, yes, I definitely recommend always doing like a bloomy rind cheese and a pressed uncooked cheese and a blue cheese and then throw in like a wild card yeah, a wild card cheese. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about tastes again, just okay. to remind people, because mm-hmm. <laughs> turns out that's the theme of our the theme of our cheese board tonight is oh is the varying the varying, the varying taste receptors mm-hmm. that you have. So humans are typically described as having five taste receptors: so sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and savory, or umami. 
Taste buds can distinguish between different tastes by detecting interaction with different molecules or ions. So this is really interesting. Sweet, savoriness, and bitter tastes are triggered by the binding of molecules to some protein-coupled receptors on your cell membranes of your taste buds. Mm. And saltiness and sourness are perceived when alkali metals or hydrogen ions enter your taste buds. Oh, weird. Isn't that weird? Oh, I didn't know that. That's so weird. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so your basic taste modalities contribute only partially to the sensation and flavor of food in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So you always have to consider smell, which is yeah. detected by your nose, mm. texture that's detected through a variety of mechanoreceptors or muscle nerves, mm-hmm. temperature, which is by yeah. thermoreceptors, and you also have things like worrying about coolness. So oh, that's sure. like menthol mm-hmm. or like eucalyptus, that kind of thing. And also hotness. So mm-hmm. like a spiciness or a pungency. And those are detected through your skin and mucous membranes. Oh, weird. Mm-hmm. Very fun. Um, all different tastes can be detected on all parts of the tongue. Mm. By your taste buds. Yes. um, With some slightly increased sensitivities in different locations, depending on the person. So if you go back to elementary school and you can picture, they taught you like on your tongue, they taught you like a map, a tongue map, like Mm -hmm. the tip of your tongue is sweet and the back of your tongue, like that's not real. Yeah. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that. It's garbage. Don't listen to that. Um, Some people consider cheeses to be very salty. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why why does cheese taste salty? Um, salt is an essential ingredient in cheese making. So it's mm-hmm. adding your flavor. It assists in drying cheese curds. It actually slows down bacterial culture and controls the process by which the lactose is converted into lactic acid. It also helps to inhibit any potentially harmful bacteria and fungi when it's used as like a wash or a bath on the cheese. So mm-hmm. it kind of is, it's an essential ingredient of cheese. And so yeah. people will often consider cheeses to be salty. Mm-hmm. And finally, and this comes into play, especially um, as somebody who's gotten their level three award in wines from the WSET. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Who, yes. who here has that? Is yes. that, is that mm-hmm. you? Someone on this podcast has their WSET level three now. Congratulations. Um, yes, thank you. I can't wait to put it to great use. Um, Educating the masses about how delicious wine is. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So You're doing the Lord's work, Julia. <laughs> so we talk about congruent and complementary pairings. Mm-hmm. So in a congruent pairing, the food and wine chosen happen to share several compounds and flavors. So okay. that's like when you have like a very... Um, a dessert with a sweet wine mm-hmm. or like you might have like a buttery Chardonnay wine that you would pair with like a buttery pasta dish. Sure. So the benefits of a congruent pairing that allows the wine and the food to enhance the flavor of each other. Makes sense. So that's typically like um, when you want to create, say maybe you have like a savory um, meat dish like yes. or a, a pasta dish or something like that with like a lot of tomato and ragu and meat and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff that's when you would go with like a red wine that yeah. you get a lot of great congruent pairings out of that but complementary pairings are where um, your combinations don't really share any compounds and flavors and instead you want them to kind of be opposite of each other mm-hmm. so the flavors in each would be balanced by their contrasting elements so in the wine world you always hear that people are like oh if you have like a really spicy 
food dish mm-hmm. pair it with a sweet white wine yeah so you always hear like a gewurztraminer which is typically like a very yes. floral sometimes sweet wine mm-hmm. they often say like oh well you should have that with like spicy thai food yeah thai food so mm-hmm. in your brain you're like what but why mm-hmm. but it's because they the flavors actually complement each other yeah um, and it helps to balance out each other and i have also noticed that they also it like enhance each other where it's mm-hmm. like oh this really brings out the fruitiness of the wine yes. like the spice and the spiciness becomes more you know intense exactly. because of the fruitiness of the wine or if you think about like having a piece of dark chocolate with a coffee yeah like mm-hmm. that just brings out and enhances that like the flavors of the both. flavors of both mm. it's awesome so yeah just wanted to bring that up because when we talk about what you might want to pair with your cheeses, this is what you have to consider is, yeah. is do you want it to be something that's complimentary or do you want it to be something that is congruent? Mm-hmm. So yes, for our sweet cheese, Lauren. Yeah. So uh, we were talking about doing this and we were like, okay, we're going to do the four flavors. So we're going to do um, sweet, salty, uh, umami, and spicy. And I took sweet and spicy. And my first thought for sweet was yay toast. And Ye Toast, which is um, spelled uh, G-J-E-T-O-S-T, and my good friend Victoria, our good friend Victoria, um, helped me remember it by saying, um, you have to remember it's like, yay toast. Like, we love toast. Yay toast. Because that's how you remember it. Um, but Ye Toast is a Norwegian cheese, and um, it's a little bit weird. It's, it's weird. It's, it's a weird cheese, guys. path, Yes. Um, it has approximately the same texture as a young Gouda, uh, but it's like a little bit stickier. Um, it looks and tastes like a block of basically savory caramel. Right. Um, and apparently uh, blog posts about it, in English at least, um, use adjectives like, quote, freakish. Uh, and they discuss the possibility that candy companies have conspired to sell us confections disguised as cheese. And even the out-of-print Murray's Cheese Handbook calls it, quote, amazing if somewhat revolting. So <laughs> Great. So that sounds disgusting. By the way, um, I got all of my Yatos information from this very charming website called wineforfood.com for the numeral four. Um, and this article was written by Christine Clark. Uh, but um, so to understand yay toast, you have to kind of have a, a basic understanding of the cheese making process. So to make cheese, you use enzymes and acidity to break milk into its parts. So curds, which are the fat and the protein solids, and whey, which comprises the leftover water, sugar, and some minerals. So when you make every other kind of cheese, you take the curds and then you cook and cut and maneuver them into whichever cheese style you, that you're going for. Mm-hmm. When making yay toast, you take the leftover whey and cook it down until it becomes a sweet and salty paste, thanks to the magic of the Maillard reaction. Uh, So in this sense, it's not exactly cheese, but it doesn't really fit neatly into really any (laughs) other category either. So we're just calling it cheese. Um, Yay toast actually means goat cheese in Norwegian. It is part of the Brunost or, quote, brown cheese family. Um, and it's part of what the Danish call uh, mistos uh, or whey cheese. Um, it's the style of cheese has existed for ever, just eons. Um, but Yato specifically, uh, and Yato in its modern form, we have uh, An Hove to thank for that. So uh, she was born around 1846 in the tiny valley of Gudbrandsdalen. 
And uh, the agricultural census of 1865 said that her family's farm had four horses, 27 dairy cattle, seven sheep, and five pigs. Um, but And goats were really common in this region, but her dad hated goats. He had sold them off years before because he thought that they were too noisy. Um, so... One day in 1863, she was visiting friends at a nearby farm, and she asked her dad to make for permission to make yay toast with a leftover whey. And he said, yeah, sure, no problem. So she poured the whey into the pot. She added like a splash of cream, which was kind of a splurge at that point. Like she was like, I wonder what's going to happen with this. So she put a little cream in there. And the final product was so delicious, um, they dubbed it uh, fay toast or fat cheese. Okay. Because it made it much more... Um, like plummy fatty in the mouth. So she married a nearby goat farmer as you would, because you, she was deprived of goats for so long. Right. Um, you got to rebel. Uh, exactly. Um, she started adding goat's milk to her, to her creation in addition to the cow cream and began to sell it in a nearby village. Um, and after a few years of local success, a trader named Ola Kongsley approached Anne about selling it in Oslo and they sold it there as Gudbrandsdalsost, or cheese from Gudbrandsdalen. And it quickly grew in popularity. And by 1908, they had an industrial factory um, just for the purpose of making her amazing wow. May toast. So it basically, the bans for this cheese basically saved this region of Norway financially. Okay. Um, and she won the King's Medal of Merit for her contributions to Norwegian cuisine and the economy <laughs> um, at 87 years old. Um, and the internet still refers to her, the creator of a cheese empire, as a milkmaid. Uh, quote, unquote, a come milkmaid. Come on. Yeah. So now Yetost is a very popular cheese in Norway still. Um, it's both an ingredient to add richness and depth to game-based stews. Um, they also use it as a topping for bread or waffles. Uh-huh. Um, they make 12 variations with different combinations of milk and, and cream and varying levels of s- sweetness. And in the U.S., the most popular version comes in red packaging, and it is often labeled Ski Queen, and that is exactly what we have in front of us today. Ski Queen. Um, toast is commonly eaten in Norway uh, when eating breakfast or as the last meal of the day, which is kind of like a post-dinner sort of like return to breakfast food. It would be kind of like huh. instead of dessert at the end of the day, we would just have like some pancakes. That's kind of a traditional thing, I guess. It's called Kveldsmat. Um, yay toast pairs especially well with coffee or dark beers like stouts or porters. Um, and then when spread thinly on bread with jam, it makes an excellent grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, interesting. Um, or, you know, just as a really tasty snack, you can just have it with some apple slices. Uh, it is surprisingly tasty. I am not somebody, I'm going to slice into it right now. Yeah. Um, I am not somebody who likes sweetness in her savory things. Like I don't normally like fruit with my meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but yay toast is, I highly recommend that, that you try some yay toast, everybody. It's quite tasty. Yeah, it is absolutely the color of caramel. It is. And it's kind of beautiful actually. I'm going to yeah, try it with the, an apple. The, the Norwegian brown cheeses. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we also have, we have some apple slices. We have some fig jam. We have some pecans and some dried fruit and some crackers in front of us. Um, you know, you pick whatever sounds good to you, everybody. It tastes like, it does have like the texture of Gouda. And it's sweeter than you think it would be. <laughs> it's sweeter than you think it would be. Mm-hmm. Like if... 
like if somebody shaped this into a cube and then handed it to you, you wouldn't think it was cheese. You would mm-hmm. think it was a caramel. It is malleable in that way for sure. What would I do with this? Hmm. Do you want it with an apple? Ooh, it might be good with nuts. I bet it would be really yeah, good with I nuts. I got some pecans over here. Mm-hmm. Help yourself. I'm going to try that. Yeah. Would you like a yay toast? He's engineer, Josh. Here, I'll slice you off a hunk. Have yeah, I had- think it goes good with pecans. Actually makes the pecans more nutty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really brings out the nut. It really brings out the nuttiness of the nut. <laughs> That's crazy. I love it. Oh, yeah. It's great with an apple. Mm. It's very rich. Yeah, you're not going to eat a, a block of mm-hmm. toast. Yay toast is not a, um, you know, eat a hunk of it in front of the TV kind of yeah, cheese. The size of a car battery. Yeah. No, this is a nibbling cheese. Um, but not to quote myself from the last cheese along, because I had to listen to the last cheese along to, to, not, to not copy myself or you. Um, but it is a good gateway cheese into maybe some of the stranger cheeses out there. All right. That's a good, that's a good one. This is definitely a, uh, a conversational cheese. Yes. Uh, you're going to a party. Someone mm-hmm. asked you to bring a piece of cheese. Yeah. Not like, just a piece. I guess you would bring, like, you would probably my, bring the whole thing. Here's my quarter pound of cheese. Enjoy, everyone. You just pull it out of your yeah. handbag. Here, do something with this. <laughs> yeah, blow it off. <laughs> it is um, it is sweeter than you expect, but not like, there's there's no aspect of like candiedness to it. It doesn't feel like it's not cloying. Yeah, it's not cloying, and it it tastes natural, not like someone thought to put right. sugar in cheese kind of thing. Right, because it's because you're like concentrating the sugars that are in the that are already there milk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I am a big fan of Yay Toast. If you can find Yay Toast at a specialty cheese shop, everybody. Um, I got mine at a little grocery store called Wegmans. Oh. Um, I highly recommend not going to Wegmans uh, two days before Christmas. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I had to basically like knock over a couple of old ladies just to get to this hunk of yay toast. So you're welcome, everyone. She's on the <laughs> lamb right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the lamb. They're looking for me. Um, so yeah, so that's yay toast. I'm glad you're enjoying it's it. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. It's such a... I'm I'm curious to hear what what people who've never had it before mm-hmm. are going to say. Yeah, let us know. So, following up sweet, we have our salty cheese. Mm-hmm. And I actually went with a Roquefort, which is a very very blue cheese. Um challenging. Yes, a challenging cheese. So this is a sheep milk cheese from southern France and uh, EU law dictates that only those cheeses aged in the natural Combalou caves of the Roquefort sur Sauzon may bear the name Roquefort. It's a recognized geographical indication and has a protected designation of origin. So Roquefort is one of the world's best known blue cheeses. 
The cheese itself is white. It's tangy and crumbly. It's slightly moist and it has very distinctive veins of blue to blue green mold. Um, That's what I'm seeing right now. It's what Mm. you're seeing. Yeah. Uh, It has a characteristic fragrance and flavor with a notable taste of butyric acid, which some people find off-putting. Like Mm. when you start to learn what like different... What different like smell and taste profiles are in like terms of their like chemical compounds. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Mm. Um, Like when you or when you're learning stuff in the wine world, you're learning things like Bretomyces is a is a it's tends sometimes is a fault in wine. It smells like a sweaty horse. Ew. Or um, you hear like what you hear like <laughs> pyrazines is like um the bell pepper smells that you might get in in a grape, that kind of thing. Um, butyric acid. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what people say that it's. You're say not? That it's like vomit. Oh no! I I'm going to eat this. I know. I know. Sometimes it has like that's just the that's just like the ass that's just like the, the compound, yeah. and that's how some people interpret it with your human brain. <laughs> She she just looked at me with such empathy in no. her eyes, like your human, your human brain, brain thinks that elevate Guys, yourself. But it's fine. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Keep going. The blue veins inside the cheese they provide a sharp tang or even like a spicy peppery bite. Oh wow! Um, there's no rind to a Roquefort. The exterior is edible. It's very salty, and sometimes people will use the word stinky to describe it. Sure, but um, blue cheeses are. They're all kind of different. Mm-hmm. So if you tried a Gorgonzola and you didn't like it, you might like a Roquefort. Or sure. you might like You a can't Castle write Blue off an entire... Or, yes, yeah. exactly. Don't write off a full um, category of cheese just based on one experience. So the process of making Roquefort. Legend mm-hmm. has it that the cheese was discovered when a youth eating his <laughs> lunch of bread and used milk cheese saw a beautiful girl in the distance. Of course. He abandoned his meal in a nearby cave and he ran to go meet her. Oh boy. Um, a few months later, he returned. No <laughs> no word on if he got the girl. Mm. But the mold from the cave, the Penicillum Roqueforti, had transformed his plain cheese into Roquefort cheese. Oh my. And he said, I'm going to put this in my mouth. Yes. Well, his meal was still there when he I came guess back. I so. guess right? So the mold that gives Roquefort its distinctive character, it is Penicillum Roqueforti is the name of the mold. Um, It's found in the soil of the local caves there. And traditionally, the cheesemakers would extract it by leaving bread in the caves for six to eight weeks till it got like consumed by the mold. And then the interior of their bed was dried to produce a powder. But they don't really do that anymore. In modern times, they grow that in a laboratory, which allows for greater consistency. So Roquefort is made entirely from the milk of the Locan breed of sheep. So this sheep, it's not a cute fluffy sheep. This no? is like a mountain sheep. This Uh-oh. is like a this is like a a tough sheep. A tough. Yeah, this sheep has seen some stuff. Um <laughs> it's like a big it's like a big hard head and it's not super fluffy. What's it spell? How's it spelled? Um L A C A U N E. It's like a tough sinewy mallet-headed oh, breed yeah, with very sheep, little wool. This sheep is this, this sheep's fucked up. This sheep will <laughs> sheep knock you will, down a mountain. Will wreck you. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> the Locon sheep, it's well adapted to like the austere conditions that are there on that plateau. Around four and a half liters of milk is required to make one kilogram of Roquefort. So every day, tankers collect milk and deliver it to the creameries, like fresh. 
This is unpasteurized wow. milk. Okay. Um, it's heated and poured into closed vats, blended with a mixture of the culture, the penicillin milk forti, and rennet. And not only does this curdle the milk, but the yeast also triggers the fostering of the mold from the center of the cheese. Mm. Once it's firm, the curd is milled. It's shaped by molds that are left to drain in storage. And a generous brine of salt is applied by hand that helps to prevent an excessive growth of the mold on the rind. Um, shortly after, that brine cheese is pierced with steel needles, which allows the blue veins to actually develop and breathe. Naturally formed caves in the cliffs overhanging the village of Roquefort serve as the home of the cheese during aging. So it allows it to absorb the filtered moisture and the flavors of the cave as the time passes. Mm -hmm. So humidity in those caves is actually 95 to 98%, which is wild because 100% humidity is raining. Yeah, Um, exactly. But this... (laughs) This really allows the cheese to stay moist, too. Yeah, so you'll, you'll hear people talk about that in, in terms of Roquefort. Um, it's aged for about 20 days, and then it's wrapped in foil, which slows the development of additional mold, and it allows the texture to soften, giving it its creamy consistency. And after three months of ripening, the foil gets removed, and it's sent out to shops. So I am going to take myself a little hunk with the blue, with the veins. I'm not afraid of it. Bless you. All right. You shouldn't be either. I I will I will be bold and brave. Um classic pairing with Roquefort is pears and walnuts. Oh, makes sense. Also apples and figs and other dried fruits and honey. So, we have some options here. Okay. Here we go. Right off the bat I'm getting that like tangy tanginess. Mm-hmm. This on a steak? Holy moly. Yeah. Mama Mia. It's very salty. Mm-hmm. Um, so since it is so salty, you wouldn't want to pair this with like a red wine necessarily. Because okay, that would yeah. make it, that would make that red wine like thin and bitter. Okay. Instead, you would want to pair this with like a sweet wine. So that's what I'm talking about complimentary. Oh, so this, yeah. We have this like salty, tangy Roquefort cheese. You want to pair this with like... So turn, which is like a very sweet botterized white wine, um, a Tokai again, which which is a white wine that's undergone botrytis, um, or something like a tawny port. Late harvest Riesling or late harvest Sauvignon Blanc would also go good with it. Um, they also suggest a peaty whiskey, like a Lagavulin. Okay, yeah. Um, you can make a blue cheese dressing with this. Uh, yeah, stuff mushrooms good. or figs. Definitely top a burger or a steak with it. Um, like a pizza. You can do like a blue oh, cheese yeah. pizza with like some like herb, like some greenery on it. And oh man. Some arugula? Get out of here with exactly. this. Exactly. Make it into a blue cheese dressing. Dip your, dip your chicken wings in dip it. Dip your chicken wings in it. That's buffalo wings for people that that don't live in. Western New York, because mm-hmm. they don't call them buffalo wings when you live in Buffalo for some reason. Because they're just wings. What else are there? Mmm. Cracker. Cheese. Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I just discovered things every day, you guys. Um... Try this thing I just did. The Roquefort on a cracker with the fig jam. Fig jam, that's what I'm saying. Is perfect. All right. Your girl's getting in on that. I do love a fig jam. It's so... What's the word I'm looking for? Indulgent. 
indulgent, but fig I find is so um, rustic. She just popped that whole sucker right in her mouth. No bites. I'm a hearty gal. Isn't it good? Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, yeah I think yeah. some people are like, can be put off by the thought of seeing the visible mold. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's, it's very controlled. Yes. <laughs> These, they have been making this cheese for like, Eight hundred, nine hundred, yeah, twelve hundred years. You're not getting sick on this stuff. No. Also, not for nothing. If you're in the U.S., it's pasteurized anyway. Right. So, some trivia about Roquefort cheese. Um, in France, it's often called the king of cheeses or the cheese of kings. <laughs> depends. <laughs> depends. Who it you means are. two different things. So the story goes that ninth century emperor Charlemagne had Roquefort delivered to his residence twice a year because he loved it so much. Wow. Um, in 1411, King Charles VI issued a decree ruling that Roquefort cheese was entitled to a brand name. So all the way later, 20th century, in 1925, the cheese was the recipient of France's very first Appellation d'Origine Controlée when regulations controlling its production and naming were first defined. As of 2021, there are actually only seven Roquefort producers. Like, oh wow, only seven people, well, yeah. companies can create yeah. Roquefort cheese. So this came from um, Société Roquefort, which is probably the brand that you'll see the most imported into the U.S. US too. Oh. Um, according to Smithsonian Magazine, over the past dozen years, quote, sales of Roquefort cheese have fallen 15 percent um, mm. to around 16,000 tons a year in 2020. The people who love it are growing ever grayer and French parents <laughs> are no longer bringing up their young to appreciate the taste that any normal child instinctively would find yucky. Oh. So that's the other thing is like if you're having this like mental block about there being like visible mold on your cheese, like you know what? You're actually supposed to have that like mental thing about it because yeah, you're a human. Yep. Your instinct is this is moldy. I'm not supposed to have it. So mm-hmm. like little kids are going to. Yeah, they're going to be very averse. This. Mm-hmm. But as you as your taste buds mature and you realize like, oh, shit, I can put big jam on this. <laughs> yeah. And it's really and it's tasty. Actually really good. Mm-hmm. Um, like you're, you know, they're just not having as many people. Yeah, as exactly. people buy this, which is really interesting to think about. However, according to a 2012 study, Roquefort contains anti-inflammatory compounds. And oh, a study from 2013 found that proteins from Roquefort cheese inhibit chlamydia propagation. What? <laughs> Isn't that helpful? That's so helpful. <laughs> Keep that in mind, everybody, I guess. They should be feeding it to the koalas, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, yeah, because they have. there's an outbreak out there. <laughs> Jeez. So yeah, Roquefort cheese. Interesting. It's, um, it's was the very first AOC in France. Mm-hmm. Um, delicious. It's delicious. Yeah, I'm into it. Very good. Thank See, you. See, you know what? I thought you were going to be like. I actually hate Roquefort. I hate blue cheese. I I normally don't uh, gravitate toward yes. it. I will say. Um, but I am I am a trier. Yeah, I'll try anything once. Uh-huh. And then um, she'll tell you if she hates and it. And I'll tell you if you hate it. Yeah. I mean, I got strong opinions about things, but the Roquefort's very good. It's, uh, yeah, it's excellent with the, uh, with the fig jam. Um, so for my spicy, we won't, we won't dwell on it because I know that you're not a spicy gal. Oh, it's okay. Um, I'm, I like to learn. Uh, 
And also, I I mean, it's pepper jack cheese is very, it's straightforward. So I'm actually going to try what's this. What's in it? I'll, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you what's in pepper jack. So this is a smoked Monterey pepper jack cheese. Um, it is a derivative of Monterey Jack, which is the original, you know, quote unquote, American cheese. He's also the, the pilot in Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Oh, yeah. Monterey, Monterey Jack. Jack. I forgot about him. Um, it was invented by Mexican Franciscan friars of Monterey, California. Um, so the the Monterey Jack pepper jack is flavored with sweet peppers, rosemary, habanero chilies, garlic, and spicy jalapenos for extra kick. Um, so it is a semi-soft, open-textured cheese. Um, it is spicy, yet it uh, leaves a delicate, buttery taste in the mouth. Um, it is often eaten with quesadillas, crackers, or hamburgers. You also often see it on hamburgers and in restaurants. Um, pepper jack can also go well with jalapeno peppers, melons, grapes, pickled vegetables, and olives to like pick up the brininess. Yeah, I can see that. So I'm going to try this. I'm going to be okay. your canary in a coal mine okay. here. Because, yes, I'm, I don't love spicy food. I like, um, I'm not a pepper, a hot pepper gal. I like things like wasabi and mustard and horseradish. This is totally fine for you. Yeah, I believe you. This is it. Smell the smokiness. Smell of this is mm-hmm. like it smells like you're burning peppers. Is what it smells like to me. Yeah, um, the flavor is not taste, as overwhelming. It doesn't taste as. I will say the the outside smoky is the smokier. Okay. And but it is not especially spicy. But right. you're giving me yeah. Okay. It's more smoky than spicy. Yes. Um, I I think someone I know would love this on a burger. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, could you make nachos with this? I bet you could. Shred it up, sprinkle dinkle. Yeah. Then <laughs> this one is like multicolored too, so it's um, it's got a lot of stuff in it. It's got some some red flakes <laughs> and some green flakes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's not the spiciest thing it's I ever sp- ate, but. <laughs> <laughs> so Julie and I have a lot in common. There are this also a lot of things of we don't have in yeah. common. And one of the things that we don't have in common is I love spicy food. Like the spicier, the better. <laughs> I want my eyes to run. I want my nose to run. I love that shit. Whereas I don't want food to hurt me. <laughs> But it doesn't hurt. It's like tasty. You know what I mean? Like I love a spicy Thai food. Oh, man. Remember when Thai Me Up was around? And you could get like your spicy yeah. level from like 1 to 10? Yeah. And, and I'd I would say, get a- I'll take a zero, please. <laughs> <laughs> Steve and I would get like an eight every single time. And that was like the bleeding edge of oh, too spicy and then for like, me. And then like just the snot coming out of your nose and the, the, Not- the your faces being bright red and the sweat just like... Just really enhanced your your eating. <laughs> so that didn't happen to me. But I will say my lovely husband Steve, who I love dearly, um, has some has some runny nose issues when it comes to spicy foods. <laughs> so yes, there was a lot of nose blowing on the way home that day, but totally worth it. So 
So yeah, but, this one, this this pepper jack, I would think would be really good with like Tex-Mex food. Mm-hmm. It is a Monterey Jack in general, aside from the pepper part, is a workhouse cheese, workhorse cheese. You can snack on it. You can put it on stuff. It melts easily. Everybody likes it. You can put it on a cheese board and people go, oh, oh, I love Monterey Jack. Now, spicy is one of the hardest flavors to contend with when you're doing wine. One would imagine, especially yes. Like chili, like a chili heat. Yes, exactly. That's a, that's a really tough um, thing to pair with because it will, if you have like a higher alcohol wine... Yeah. With a chili heat, like all you're going to be is burning. Yeah, of course. So you'd want like a lower alcohol wine, probably like a lower alcohol beer with mm-hmm. this. Um, you'd probably want something like hoppy and floral if you're doing yeah, beer with sense. it. Yeah, like an IPA. Yeah, or like something clear, like cleaning, like a Corona or mm-hmm. you know something like that. Um, I'm having a tough time picking out a wine right now that I would pair with with smoked pepper jack smoked cheese. Smoked pepper jack? I got the smoke in in anticipation of maybe it would be better for you, but apparently it was the smoke that sent you over the edge. <laughs> so we can swiftly move on from the pepper jack. Um, but it's good to have. It's oh, good yeah. to have a, an option because there are a lot of heat yeah. seekers out there. Yes. Yes. And you want your cheese board to be... Uh, to be equal opportunity. Yes. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> I need some more of this yay toast while we're sitting here. Yeah. Uh, moving on. So, like I said, you're you're. We learned about like compounds that that create these different sensations or different smells or different flavors. Um, so, glutamate or glutamic acid is an amino acid that gives you that umami flavor that translates to a pleasant, savory flavor in Japanese. So, for our umami cheese, I have a forty-month-aged Parmigiano Reggiano. I'm so excited. Okay. So the origin of Parmigiano Reggiano, it's made in the Parma Reggio Emilia region of Italy. That's the official PDO. Um, It has strict adherence to traditions that are handed down for more than a thousand years. Um, According to the official Parmigiano Reggiano website, quote, in the Middle Ages, the Benedictine and Cistercian monks were the first producers using the salt from the Salso Maggiore salt mines and the milk of the cows bred in the Grange, the farms belonging to the monasteries, the monks obtained a dry paste cheese and large wheels suitable for long preservation. Mm. So they actually have records of a Cassius Parmensis, um, translating to cheese from Parma, already known is in different parts of Italy, um, as early as the 13th century. So having records of food from that early is yeah. like really kind of crazy. So Parmigiano Reggiano received protected status in Italy in 1955. Um, it received protected status by the EU in 1992. And in 1996, it was recognized as a European protected designation of origin, even though it is one of the most counterfeited cheeses in the world. That makes sense. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So characteristics of Parmigiano Reggiano. <laughs> It's distinctively nutty. It has a full and fruity aroma. There are intense notes of melted butter and a dense grainy or crumbly texture. This is not just for like grating on top of your like spaghetti. Exactly. Um, Tyrosine crystals. Those are the crystals that are the crunchy bites that are found on the interior of aged cheese. They're bright white in color and they form when proteins in the cheese break down and begin to unravel during the aging process. So these, this is 40 month age. You can see like me cutting this open is just oh like, yeah bam 
Yeah. Tyrosine crystals. All right. The process for this, they use the highest quality raw cow's milk. They use animal rennet and salt. Um, Parmigiano-Reggiano is produced exclusively in the provinces of Parma, Reggio Emilia, Modena, Bologna on the left of the Reno River and Mantua to the right of the Po River. The milk from that morning and the previous evening, so okay. like within like eight hours of being milked, sure. it's poured into the traditional upturned bell-shaped copper vats. Okay. And it takes about 550 liters of milk to produce a wheel of Parmigiano-Reggiano. The milk slowly and naturally coagulates with the addition of the rennet and a whey starter. And it also uses like the starter cultures from the previous day's processing. So kind of like a you know sourdough type situation. Oh, sure. The curd which forms is broken down by the master cheesemaker into minuscule granules using a traditional tool called a spino. And it's mm. like a long stick with like a swirly metal yep. like mm-hmm. thing at the end of it. Then they cook it. So yeah. the cheese granules sink to the bottom of the cauldron. They form a single mass. And after like 50 minutes or so, the cheesemaker removes that cheese mass and cuts it into two wheels. So mm-hmm. two parts. It's wrapped in a linen cloth. The cheese is placed in a mold that gives it its final like wedge, like wheel shape. Mm-hmm. And one wheel of this weighs about 90 pounds. Holy cow. Um, so there's a case in plate with a unique and sequential alphanumeric code applied to each wheel. So that's basically its identity card, which makes it possible to trace its entire production back to the it's like producer oh anytime, anywhere. So after a few hours, um, there's a special marking band that engraves the month and the year of production onto the cheese, as well as its cheese factory registration number and the dotted inscriptions around the complete circumference of the cheese wheel. So you can see from this piece, like Mm -hmm. you can see the dots that would spell out what it needed to spell. So when you are at the grocery store or your specialty cheese shop Mm -hmm. and they have a big fancy wheel of of real Parmesan on display, like you can tell because of what's written on the, on it. Yeah, on the side of it. Mm-hmm. So after a few days, the wheels are immersed in a saturated solution of water and salt. Um, and then that basically closes the production cycle and starts its maturation period. The minimum maturation time for Parmigiano-Reggiano, 12 months. Okay. Minimum. Minimum, just a year. And that's the longest among all the PDO cheeses. Wow. And at that point, they check it like they have a very special person from the consortium of cheese Mm -hmm. that comes and checks it and then decides if it's worthy to continue the maturation to 24 36 40 months or more Mm. so they do like a quality inspection on it they like tap it with a hammer and like they're like yes this is a quality (laughs) wheel 90 pound wheel of cheese yeah um they recognize any defects inside the cheese that might compromise any quality so wow this particular cheese has been aged for 40 months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't cut off the rind so that you could see the yeah, so <laughs> the thing. So the you line. don't have to eat the rind part of this one. But on its own. Heaven. Really blast you. Yeah. Right. Really the concentrated passages. flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, very dry. Very dry. Pretty salty, actually. Yeah. But. It's recommended that pff, apples, honey, mm-hmm. dried fruits like figs and prunes, nuts like walnuts and hazelnuts. Wine-wise, um, a really aged Parmigiano-Reggiano can handle white or red, sparkling or still. With the apple, stop it. Delicious. Yeah, it's not just to put on your pasta. 
Although one of the most indulgent things that you can do is uh-huh. you carve out a hollow. Now, first of all, you are rich. Get yourself, you are rich. You are rich. One. Two, you buy yourself a wheel of Parmesan. <laughs> you carve out a hollow in the middle. You boil up some pasta, salt the water, like the sea. You pull out your pasta, still wet, throw it right in that well, and stir and stir and stir and stir. And then the pasta and the water draws away all the Parmigiano-Reggiano from the well. And it makes it perfectly, deliciously cheesy. Heaven. I've had that before. It's crazy. Incredible. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, you can do a lot with this. Mm-hmm. You can just eat it with some, like, balsamic vinegar. Mm-hmm. You can... I probably like, yeah, you can put it into a dish, but like the, this aged, you probably want to do a lot of eating it on its own. Like you want to mm-hmm. highlight this as the ingredient. Um, with like a beer, you would do like a hoppy forward beer, like a double IPA. Makes sense. Um, wine wise, you'd want like a crisp but richer white wine, like a Marsan or Roussan or Pinot Grigio. Um, for a red, you'd want like a fruity red wine with high acidity and low tannins. So a Corvina or a Barbera or a Beaujolais. Oh, also Amarone della Volapocella uh, is a is a classic pairing with that. So that's that gives you like the raisiny blend of like concentrated fruit. Um, oh, sure, yeah. And, like complements it like a much like a balsamic vinegar would. So, yeah, and a sparkling would like refresh your palate as you went to. Oh, but sure, yeah. I just tried some with a with a date with a with a dried date, and it the sweetness of the date mm-hmm. versus like the saltiness of this cheese goes really well. Now, sometimes if it's aged for a long time, I wasn't sure, quite sure what to expect with the 40 month. But like, much like a, a wine that's been aged for a long time, um, that's still good, obviously. You're getting things like mushroom and you're getting meat and you're getting like like tobacco and like flavors like that out of like something that's been aged for a really long time. So um, you can definitely get things like that after, you know, a couple years of aging on a, Mm -hmm. on a wine like that cheese like this. All right. I'm trying with a date. It's a very crunchy cheese too right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. With the date. Mm Mm-hmm. So some trivia. Wheels of Parmigiano-Reggiano became a gift of the utmost luxury. In 1511, Pope Julius II is said to have made a gift of 100 wheels of Parmesan to King Henry VIII that today would be worth more than 50,000 pounds. Oh, my God. In the famous diaries of Sammy Pepys, during the Fire of London in September 1666, he wrote, quote, I did dig another hole and we put our wine in it and I, my Parmesan cheese, as well as my wine and some other things. So You could not separate him from his... Uh, comforts no um italy's uh credem bank accepts wheels of parmigiano reggiano as loan collateral and the bank has almost a half a million wheels stored in its warehouses at the beginning of the 1500s italian nobility began to refer to the cheese as parmigiano and was shortened to parmesan by the french so the shortened version of the original name eventually became the norm and this cheese became a staple of relations between france and italy um, 
Interestingly, I think Parmesan was a popular ice cream flavor in England during the late Georgian era. Um, there's a there's a recipe that's going around going around the internet from 1789. Uh, by a guy named Frederick Nutt. And he says, quote, take six eggs, half a pint of syrup and a pint of cream, put them in a stew pan, boil them until it begins to thicken, then rasp three ounces of Parmesan cheese, mix, pass through a sieve and freeze it. And it was like, it was a popular flavor. I mean, you can't... I can kind of see that. Like, sure. You're like, it would be cheese, a cheesy ice cream. Yeah. But... I mean, I guess it's no, I shouldn't say no different, but... I guess it's, you know, similar to like a cheesecake ice cream where there's like a a cheesy quality right. to the dessert. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I really want to underscore, and I have been conscious of this for about five years now, and I'm very picky about it, but the Parmesan cheese you buy in like the plastic canister for $1.99 yeah. in the Italian aisle at the grocery store is not... Parmigiano Reggiano. Um, According to the FDA's Code of Federal Regulations, Parmesan cheese is allowed to only have three ingredients in it, milk, rennet, and salt. Um, You know, you know, they'll give some allowance for like some small other particles they can get in there. But combined, that can only weigh 0.01% or less of the total weight. Okay. Um, Kraft's Kraft's grated Parmesan cheese adds cellulose, potassium sorbate, and cheese culture. Mm. cellulose guys is wood pulp yeah i was gonna say isn't that like paper basically yeah it's pieces of wood that are ground down finely and it becomes pulpy like it's edible sure but like it's papers edible. but it's not cheese <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're right that's I'm, not cheese right no nope. so when like almost 10 percent of your product is this like anti-caking agent that's used to like bulk up the container yeah don't buy it, guys. <sighs> Spend the extra couple extra bucks. Yeah, get yourself some I, real we cheese. We get like the great, like the yeah. I'm I'm bougie now. We get like the grated like parmesan from the from, from the, the cheese, cheese section shop. at Yeah, because yeah, I know that they didn't put add like, wood chips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, your cheese should not be like your grated cheese should not be shelf stable. Like it should not yeah. be in like the dry goods part yeah. of your grocery store. Now, the good thing about Parmesan cheese is it, it does last a while in the fridge yes. when you have it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is pretty low in calorie, which is why like, you know, people who are who tend to be doing like calorie reduction stuff mm-hmm. will use this in things to like give it that cheesy, salty flavor because it is kind of low in calories mm-hmm. um, compared to a lot of other <laughs> sure. cheeses for like sure. Like maybe Ye Toast, which is basically caramel <laughs> cheese. <laughs> sugar, sugar milk sugar cheese. Sugar milk cheese, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, so it it definitely has. Um, I I don't know why you just wouldn't get the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, just get. You know what? Life is too short, everybody, to eat garbage cheese. <laughs> and you know what? You don't have to spend a ton of money. There are middling levels of cheese that you can get, and it would improve your life dramatically, and you would be so much happier. Two percent happier because of that. Ellie, my our our very smart, brilliant, opinionated two and a half year old. Uh, we were eating dinner the other night, and she had a piece of like cheddar cheese on her plate. Ate it all. Wanted more cheese. Perfect. We were out of cheddar cheese. Uh oh. So we had some craft singles from making grilled cheese, and Josh brought that out, and we unwrapped it and like broke it into pieces for her and put it on her thing, and she said, "What is this?" <laughs> 
<laughs> we said it's cheese and she said no it's not cheese <laughs> oh we said, no yeah 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 it's 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 a cheese product and you know and then she's why <laughs> you've created a monster yes she is going to only want that's the finest cheese. that's not cheese <laughs> i'm sorry mommy you must be mistaken. That's it not was, cheese. I was like, I didn't coach her or anything. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor dear. Well, now you know she won't eat subpar cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that was our cheese along. Cheesing along. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. And uh, in in a, in our you know present reminiscent mood. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about a couple of topics that maybe we didn't get around to or, uh, couldn't really make into an entire episode or just some, (laughs) just some like random things that we just wanted to like impart on each other. So one episode that I really wanted to do that I just never got around to. And also because I I felt like I couldn't like do her justice was anime Wong. Mm. So she was, um, Anna Mae Wong was an American actress. She was the first Chinese American movie star in Hollywood. Um, she was born in 1905. Her, uh, her given name was Wong Liu Tsong. Um, and her career spanned silent film, sound film, television, stage, and radio. She basically did it all. Um, she was also uh, the uh, first Asian American to appear on a U.S. coin in the... Um, Right, this year. Yeah, this year in the 2022 to 2025 American Women Quarters. So she's on the That's reverse awesome. of one of them. So she was actually born in Los Angeles to second generation uh, Taishanese Chinese American parents. Um, and she was like obsessed with movies and she began acting in films at a very early age. Um, and she also became a fashion icon in the 20s. Uh, she achieved international stardom in, the, in 1924. She was one of the first to embrace the flapper look, like her haircut, like that bobbed, oh, yeah. like kind of round haircut um, is kind of her signature like hairstyle. Um, she was voted the world's best dressed woman in 1934 by the Mayfair Mannequin Society of New York. Yeah, watch out. Um, and... But she was really frustrated by kind of this stereotyping characters that she was kind of being reluctantly forced to play. Um, she was, it was, there were mostly like supporting roles of like, you know, she was either a, like a delicate flower or a dragon lady. Like those were the two kind of. Yeah, you could be like a, ge- like like a geisha, geisha or character. A, yeah, exactly. Um, so she left for Europe in the late 20s to um to start doing theater in notable plays and films and she did piccadilly in europe um in 1929 and she basically spent a lot of the 1930s traveling between the u.s and europe and um she was featured in films of the early sound era such as daughter of the dragon java head daughter of shanghai and um, she started with marlena dietrich in shanghai express in 1932 um she was uh, really disappointed when she wasn't given the uh, lead role in Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth, oh. which was like, this was a leading role for a Chinese character. And the first time this would be like portrayed on film in the U.S. And apparently Metro Goldwyn Mayer refused to consider her for the leading role. Um, so instead they cast Louise Rayner to play the leading role in Yellowface. Yes, a white lady. 
Yeah, a white lady. <clears throat> and uh, one of her biographers believes that the choice was due to the Hayes Code anti-miscegenation rules. Mm. Um, requiring the wife of a white actor, Paul Mooney, um, who was ironically playing a Chinese character in Yellowface, uh, to be played by a white actress. So it it like didn't make any sense. Like so, both of these white actors were playing Chinese characters, but she couldn't have the character of Olan because she was Chinese yeah. and he was clearly white, but yeah. pretending to be Chinese. Like it doesn't make any sense, and is super racist. Um, so. Uh, however, other biographers haven't really corroborated this fear, this theory. Um, they think that she, they screen tested her for the role. Um, but it's actually ambiguous whether she refused the role on principle or was rejected. Either way, she toured China after this. She visited her family's ancestral village. She studied Chinese culture. She was really kind of like immersing herself in her, in her, yeah, in her culture, um, and, uh, then she just kind of like starred in a bunch of B movies playing, portraying Chinese and Chinese Americans in a positive light at least. And, uh, so then she moved into the 1950s. She kind of made, moved into TV and she made history with her television show, the gallery of Madame Liu song, which was the first ever U S television show starring an Asian American series lead. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, she was also planning to return to movies in Flower Drum Song, mm-hmm. um, but she died suddenly in 1961 at the age of 56 from a heart attack. Oh, um, so for a very long time after her death, she was remembered principally for the stereotypical like dragon lady and demure. That's what it's called. A butterfly role where mm-hmm. she's either like okay. a silent, like romantic figure or like a like a evil, like forceful dragon lady. Um, like uh, the mother-in-law in Crazy Rich Asians. Yes, like the mother-in-law in Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> um, but her career was reevaluated in the years after the centennial of her birth in three major literary works and film retrospectives. So she was a groundbreaking Chinese-American actress who who did a lot for, for visibility of Asian actors in the U.S., um, so I, I always meant to, like, get in there and dig around in her life and stuff, but, you know... At least I got to say a little bit of something about this. Yeah. Now, so. No, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, the first thing I want to impart is mm-hmm. I never got around to my lakes episode, guys. Oh, yeah. No lakes. Uh, well, did, in my mind, I, I always did, thought you did. I did so. oceans <laughs> and seas and mm-hmm. rivers. I just want to tell you a little bit about lakes. Please just, do. Just some things you should remember. The deepest lake in the world is Lake Baikal in southern mm. Russia. It's an estimated 5,387 feet deep, and its bottom is approximately 3,893 feet below sea level. Um, lake Baikal is also the world's largest freshwater lake in terms of volume. The deepest in the U.S. is Crater Lake, mm-hmm. the volcanic crater in southern Oregon. Uh, so its deepest measure depth is 1,949 feet. No rivers flow into or out of it, which is really interesting. And the water level is actually based on rainfall, groundwater flow, and evaporation. So the deepest lake in the U.S. is Crater Lake. The largest lake in the world by area, and we've talked about this before, is actually the Caspian Sea. Mm. Uh, So its shorelines are in Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Russia, and Iran. Uh, It's about 143,000 square miles or 371,000 square kilometers. It is the world's largest inland body of water as well. And so its name Caspian Sea came basically because people thought it was a sea. They didn't know it was just a lake. Yeah. Yep. 
And um, the Great Lakes, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, the so greatest lakes. The largest group of freshwater lakes are on Earth by total area. Uh, the mnemonic to remember them left to right mm-hmm. is Superman helps everyone. So that's left to right, Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario. And Lake Michigan is the largest lake in the world that is entirely within one country. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because a lot of the big ones, you know, the Lake Tanganyika and yeah, in Africa, that's a you know, several different countries and you sure, know, yeah. Like I mentioned, Caspian Sea has, you know, five different country shorelines, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. See, and Julia did lakes. And now I can say, past me can say <laughs> remember your lakes remember. episode. Um of course I you know, there were tons of artists that I didn't get to talk mm-hmm. about. And one of them I didn't do because of you, Julia. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> and the reason being is because it's Robert Maplethorpe. <laughs> the reason is you. Yeah, the reason is Robert Maplethorpe. Um, Robert Maplethorpe was a uh, American photographer. Um, he was best known for his black and white photographs. They were uh, extremely beautiful. Um, he was born in November 4th, 1946. Uh his portraits featured an array of subjects, including celebrity portraits. He did a very beautiful portrait of Peter Gabriel um, for, I think it was his Up album. I don't remember which one it was. I'll have to look it up. Um, he also did male and female nudes. He did self-portraits and still life images. However, his most controversial work documented and examined the gay male BDSM subculture of New York City in the late 60s and early 1970s. Um, and I watched a documentary recently while I was breastfeeding, uh, Isaac and I had nothing else to do except just sit on the couch all day. And I watched Robert Maplethorpe colon, look at the pictures, um, which is a really great documentary about his life and his work, um, and his, uh, relationship with Patty Smith. They were, um, in a relationship for a very long time. And then when he was really starting to explore his his homosexuality, like being a strict gay man, um, they still remained very close friends and she supported his work and he supported her um, music career. Um, there was a, a 1989 exhibition of his work uh, titled Robert Maplethorpe, The Perfect Moment, which sparked a very intense debate in the United States concerning both use of public funds for obscene artwork and the constitutional limits of free speech in the United States. And the reason why that documentary is called Look at the Pictures is because um, there was a congressperson, a congressman, let's be real, who uh, denounced this uh, exhibition as pure filth. And he's, he kept repeating, look at the pictures, look at the pictures, um, because they were just so lewd. And, you know, throughout this documentary, they're showing like images of his work and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, interviewing his friends and his, you know, his partners and his family and things like that. And I was like looking at these photos and I was like, I mean, some of them are, you know, I wouldn't, they, they're considered like mainstream obscene, but I Uh certainly wasn't like, Oh my God. Right. Um, but they interviewed one woman who was a curator who had worked with him in, in his later years. And she said, I have seen it all. I, I'm very unbothered by a lot of it, but there were two artworks of his that even I was like, Ugh. and then she named them both. And I forgot the titles uh. of both. 
Um, and then, you know, when she said the title, it came up on the screen and I, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> like, oh, 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 okay. I didn't know. Huh. I didn't know the human body could do that. All right. There you go. Now I know these things. Um, unfortunately, Robert Maplethorpe uh, died very young at 46 mm. of AIDS, of complications from AIDS. Um, but he was an extremely influential photographer, considering that he didn't really know the ins and outs of photography. Like he had a whole team of people in his studio that would um, uh, deal with like his setup for his camera mm-hmm. and uh, do all of his uh, processing of his film and his prints and things like that. He had no interest in like the technical aspect oh. of his artwork. He was He's very interested in doing the image, capturing the image. Yep, exactly. Um, I'm going to look up that Peter Gabriel, Robert Maplethorpe. Shaking the tree. Okay. So he did a very beautiful portrait of Peter Gabriel in his Shaking the Tree album. That's on the cover of his Shaking the Tree so album. So he's mostly black and white. Mostly black and white. Um, he has done, you know, very straightforward, very beautiful photos of celebrities. Mm-hmm. But if it is a, a photo of a man putting something in his butt, it's a Robert Maplethorpe. <sighs> Um, what you didn't see was was both Julie and I looked over at Engineer Josh, and he just nodding sagely, like, "Yeah, I know it. I know well. Yeah, yes, yep." So he knows. So <laughs> nodding like that's yeah. what you get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. No segue between that and endonymic countries. <laughs> uh, so an endonym is a common native name for a geographical place or a group of people um, or a language or a dialect. So it's it's basically the self-designated name that people have for themselves, yes. um, their homeland or their language. An exonym is an established non-native name. So mm-hmm. for example, Deutschland yes. is the endonym for the country that we hear in, Eng- in English call Germany. Yes. Um, or like the French call Alemania. So mm-hmm. what we call them by the exonym and they refer to themselves with the endonym. Okay, that makes so, sense. So some ones that everybody should know because sometimes they're, sometimes the endonym, you can kind of see that it looks, yeah. that it it's looks similar like enough it. to the exonym right. where you know where you're talking right. about. Right. Um, so some ones you should keep an eye out for. So Bharat, B-H-A-R-A-T. That's mm-hmm. India. Oh, interesting. Um, Hrvatska is Croatia. Okay. Uh, Magyarosag is Hungary. So the so the Magyars are um, the, the people from Hungary. So mm-hmm. that one should stick with you. Egypt, what we call Egypt, is Maser. Okay. M-A-S-R or M-I-S-R. Um, Nippon or Nihon mm. is Japan. Norge is Norway. Uh-huh. I might have pronounced that wrong, but it's spelled N-O-R-G-E. Um, Osterreich is Austria. Okay. Suomi is Finland. Oh. Yeah. Um, Svieja is Sweden. So that's S-V-E-R-I-G-E. Okay. Um, Svieja is Sweden. And one that we pretty much all overlook for some reason, Zhongwo, Z-H-O-N-G-G-U-O, is China. Oh. They don't call themselves China. 
Of course not. <laughs> They're Zhang Wo. Yeah. Yeah. So those are always, I that's think I love when stuff like that comes up. Yeah. Um, it's always fun to be like, yeah, that's why the country code is this, because that's how they refer to themselves. Yeah. Um, so yes, with uh, with the World Cup wrapping up, mm. I was I was definitely rooting for Croatia again this time around. Of course. Um, so yeah, you you'll, you would see like Hrvatska on their on their jerseys, and that's what they refer to themselves as. Cool, interesting. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about, and I think I didn't get into it because it would be too, it's too broad of a topic. Uh-huh. I felt like I there would be I wouldn't be able to do it justice in just like you know forty minutes or whatever. Um, but also, it's it's interesting enough to just kind of like chat about very briefly. But it's conceptual art. So. <clears throat> I know. And I <laughs> believe me, I'm right there with you. Um, so <clears throat> we just recently got a um, a drawing, a Sol LeWitt we, drawing. We. We, meaning the Memorial Art Memorial Gallery of Rochester, New York. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we had an anonymous donor um, provide us with a Sol LeWitt drawing, a wall drawing. Okay. And um, this wall drawing has to be installed and by installed it means it has to be actually physically drawn on a wall by a hired artist from the the Solowit studio so this Solowit is no longer living but his studio still uh exists because his artwork is still being um distributed around the world and what happens is you get you say i would like to buy a Hello, I would like to buy a Solowit wall drawing. And they say, great, pick your pick your poison, man. And you say, I would like four cubes. And they say, great. Um, where are you putting it? We're putting it on this wall. Cool. He, please give us $400,000. Uh-huh. We will give you a certificate of authenticity. And then... And a person. And a person. And the person arrives at your museum or gallery or home. And they have the plans for how to build four cubes. And they... They like get some graphite together and they draw it on your wall. And now this artwork is yours. And if you loan it to another institution or you sell it, um, you have to, uh, you know, give the certificate to either the institution or the person that you're selling it to. Uh And you have to paint over the one that you have. You cannot, it cannot be in more than one place unless the studio lets you. (laughs) So you are paying money for a certificate of authenticity for something that does not exist yet in the world. So it's like an NFT. It is like an NFT. It's exactly like an NFT. So a good example of this that really like hit the mainstream was, do you remember the banana at Art Basel in 2019? Uh So the banana, the infamous banana, which was a fresh banana that was duct taped -taped to a wall, wall. was actually an artwork called Comedian by an Italian artist named Maurizio Catalan. And Mauricio Catalan is a uh, conceptual artist who uh, is also a satirist. So he was kind of poking fun at the concept of conceptual art. So um, the one thing you should know is that Comedian was uh, an edition of four. (laughs) Um, Each one sold for a surprising amount of money. Um, Two of the editions of the piece sold for $120,000 U.S., um, and, uh, there was a lot of media attention about it. And, um, in fact, there was another artist who showed up and pulled the banana off the wall and ate it. And everyone was like, oh my God, why did he eat the banana? But the artwork is still there. 
you just grab another piece of duct tape and a banana and you stick it to the wall. So when you buy Comedian, you don't get a banana and duct tape. You get a piece of paper that says, you own Comedian. Here are the instructions to build Comedian. Please go to the grocery store, buy one fresh banana. Then go to Lowe's or Home Depot, your choice, buy one roll of duct (laughs) tape. (laughs) Tear off like, you know, a half a meter of Mm -hmm, duct tape mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. align the banana to the wall and stick it to the wall. And now you have Comedian. So the point of his artwork was, look at how stupid this is. Uh Watch how, how many people want to buy this. And it's true. He sold three editions of the four editions at Art Basel Miami Beach that year, 2019, for an exorbitant amount of money. And it's just like, it's it's art world fuckery <laughs> in like the most distilled form. And when I explained the Solowit drawing to Steve, I think he almost absolutely blew his stack. He was like, this doesn't make any goddamn sense. I was like, it's... it Because you either have to keep it there forever. Yep. Or you can never have it. Or you can never have it. And the only thing that, and nothing is stopping you from drawing this drawing anywhere. I mean, there's no, it's not like you're going to get arrested, right? But the only person who owns the true artwork is this person who has the certificate of authenticity. So is, so, so you guys are like, yep, we picked out this one. Is it like a flash book from like a tattoo artist? Like, is it like, you know, he drew these drawings. You mm-hmm. can pick like a catalog you can pick from. Yes. Yes. There are a handful of wall drawings um, by Solowit that are available for purchase or loan. Um, one of which is Scribble, which was uh, installed at the Albright Knox before they did their, um, this was years ago. This is probably 2006, huh. 2007. Um, and actually it was very beautiful to see because they put it in a stairwell. Mm-hmm. So with a lot of windows. So scribble was just like people with graphite, just like literally scribbling on the wall to such a denseness that there was like patches of light and patches of dark. So it had almost like a an interesting shimmery quality to it, which was cool to see still. And what's really crazy is that I helped install the Solowit artwork. Like they send you an artist mm-hmm. who like knows the plan and has done this before, but they also request a couple of like people from the institution that can help because they need someone to hold the straight edge. There's a lot of like horizontal, vertical and, and angled lines. And so what we did all day was we sharpened graphite, taped them together in bundles of three, and then went over and just like drew tiny lines with like a millimeter apart over and over and over and over and over again to make this like four cube thing. And it's done now. And if you would like, you can go to the Memorial Art Gallery and we have it installed in our lobby, in our pavilion. Yeah. But you can't ever move it unless you no. unless you take the wall down. Can you take the wall down and put no. it in storage? No, no. It's it's just a permanent installation. It's like it's like um, you know, like wall therapy or or graffiti or something. Like it's that's it. So if we wanted to sell it, well, I mean, we don't own it. But if we wanted to, if it was, if the owner wanted to loan it to another institution, we don't own it. Yeah, we don't own. You don't it own it because it's on loan from a private collector. The private collector would say. So the private collector right now does not have this on their wall because it's on your wall. Exactly. So it's an NFT. <laughs> it's an NFT. Exactly. Yep. Yes. 
Yeah, basically. So this type of thing makes me crazy because yeah. it really, it because the art world is already like so squishy and it's so, it's already rife for like basically money laundering because it's the emperor's new clothes. It's like, we all agreed that this is art. So this is art and we're going to treat it as such. And what if you don't agree? It's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like the Masons, you know, like uh, only Masons can do the secret Mason handshake. But if you're not a Mason, you can do the handshake all you want because you don't uh, adhere to those rules. So like everything is nothing. We're playing Kelvin ball. It's yeah. But don't get too deep in it because then you start thinking like, well, money isn't backed by gold anymore. <laughs> so what's money? And then, and then you're, and then you're in a dark room in a fetal position like drooling. So don't think too deeply about it, but that's because I own art. water rights to things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's wild. So that is an aspect of my job that I was not anticipating that being a thing, but it's, uh, to me, it's both interesting in concept, conceptual art, uh, but it's also absolutely infuriating because it's not, it's not real. Nothing, nothing of this is real. It's not real. You just got the instruction sheet. We just have the, the instruction sheet mm-hmm. and the certificate. Yep. So. I'm glad that I didn't. Uh, I'm glad you didn't do a topic. Either, I know, right? Because I, four minutes into that, I would have been like, you know what, Lauren? I hate this. <laughs> I hate this. <laughs> um, finally, I one of my favorite Wikipedia pages is a list of common misconceptions. Oh, my favorite. So Love I it. just plucked out some of my faves. Great. And I just want to share them, guys. Please. All right. Twinkies. Mm-hmm. You know. The snack cake. I know it. Generally considered junk food. They have a shelf life of around 45 days, despite the common claim that they remain edible for decades. That's still a long time. 45 days? Ah. For a baked good? Yeah. The only added preservative is sorbic acid, and they normally actually only remain on a store shelf for seven to 10 days. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, um, related... Uh, you've heard of the Twinkie defense, yes. like in passing. Yep. Twinkies were actually not claimed to be the cause of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk's murders. Mm. Um, in the trial of Dan White, the defense successfully argued that White's diminished capacity as a result of severe depression. Mm. And they cited eating Twinkies as evidence of being depressed, but it was not claimed to be the cause of him murdering. I see. So just- you, you hear about people that claim... That like in passing, say like the Twinkie defense, yeah. and it's like, oh, he was so hopped up on on sugar, sugar and per- that he, preservatives. Yeah, no, that yeah didn't happen. All right. Well, speaking of the spicy, the spicy cheese, um, seeds are not the spicy part of chili peppers. Oh, interesting. Um, the seeds contain a low amount of capsaicin, which is one of the several compounds that induce that hot sensation, that pungency in in mammals. Um, the actually the highest concentration of that capsaicin is located in the pith to which the seeds are attached. I see. So you always hear people like, oh, if they're making like jalapeno poppers or something Mm -hmm. like that, that they make sure that they clear the seeds out. It's actually the pith that is the spicy part. I didn't 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 know know that. that I thought it was the seeds too. Yeah. All right. uh, Another big one. Bats. They're not blind, guys. What? Uh, About 70% of bat species, mainly in the microbat family, they use echolocation to navigate. But... All bat species are capable of sight. Um, in addition, almost all bats that are in the megabat or fruit bat family cannot echolocate and have excellent night vision. Oh, okay. So fruit bats, 
They can see just fine. They can see just fine. Speaking of seeing, mm-hmm. bulls are not enraged by the color red that are used by capes oh, in professional yeah. matadors. Um, cattle, they're, they're dichromats. They see, you know, two colors. Mm-hmm. Red does not stand out to them as a bright color. So it's actually not the color of the cape, but the perceived threat of a matador that incites it to charge. Yeah. I mean, he's also stabbing him with... Well, yeah, but you hear like seeing red as as, like, you know, Mm -hmm. as the, as the phrase. Um, and then a couple, a couple of people from history, you know, and I think I have talked about this before. George Mm -hmm. Washington did not have wooden teeth. Um, his dentures, they were gold hippopotamus ivory, um, also lead, Mm -hmm. also (laughs) animal teeth, including horse and donkey teeth. Um, and there were other human teeth possibly bought from enslaved or poor people that were part of his dentures, but not wood, guys. Well, wood. the wood is in your craft grated cheese. It's not, <laughs> not part of George Washington's, Washington's dentures. Yeah. Um, and then finally, just my gal, and I never did an episode of Marie Antoinette, um, but maybe I could, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, still. The door's open. The door's open. We didn't shut everything down. We still have the equipment. Yeah. We still own the... <laughs> we still own the rights. <laughs> we still on the website. Anyway, my girl, Marie Antoinette, we know she didn't say let them eat cake. She didn't mm-hmm. say let them eat brioche when she heard that the French peasantry were starving due to a shortage of bread. That phrase was first published in Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confessions mm-hmm. um, when Marie Antoinette was only 12 years old and it yeah. was not attributed to her just to quote a great princess. Um, and the phrase was used as anti-monarchist propaganda. And over time, French Revolution, mm-hmm. she became known as this you know figure of excess and that's who the quote got attributed to. So... No, she did not say let them eat cake. No, she did not say let them eat brioche. She, yeah. You know. It was also attributed to Madame de Pompadour, too. Ugh. Like, that mm. was another yes, misconception they as well. did not. It, uh, Rousseau kind of made it up, and it got, like, yeah. tagged to her. But following, like, you go down, like, the ugh, the rabbit hole of, like, mis- mm-hmm. misattributed quotations. That's just... That's the best. You know how people are always like, Marilyn Monroe said, girls should be... <laughs> Prettier girls when they smile. Pink. Pretty <laughs> girls love pink, or yeah. you know, like uh, anything like that is yeah. just the happiest girls are the prettiest girls, or something dumb mm-hmm. like that. Like Marilyn Monroe was a smart cookie, and yeah. she didn't need to be attributed like garbage quotes yeah. that are in like that stupid script on Instagrams. Yep. Yeah, Gandhi didn't have nearly as many like no. insights about uh, Western culture no. as uh, the internet would Neither lead you to Eleanor believe. Eleanor Roosevelt or uh, Benjamin or Franklin. Like it. <laughs> yeah. Mark Twain, on the other hand, yeah, probably yeah. said all, all the things. The place. Yeah. He probably said all those things. So, yeah, I recommend that as another, like, you know, oh, oh are you awake at three in the morning? Why don't you go down this rabbit hole, too? But Yeah, I've been there. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for listening to us over these years. Again, this is not, you know what? We might turn into just a Eurovision fan cast, you know? <laughs> we might pop into your into your uh, feed once a year where we just, like, scream about we Eurovision. Or, it, you know, we are just struck by an idea and we have to we have yeah. to put it into an audio format for people. And we we'll can do, do that. We yeah. can do that. We can do that. Uh, but we've met so many great people over the years. So yes. many people who have who have wanted to volunteer and come on and guest on the I show. Um, we've met so many amazing people at uh, at Geek Bowls and yes. at other competitions. And we've made such good we've friends. We've made such good friends along yeah. the way. The real... Winners of the podcast 
<laughs> or the friends we made, we made along, along the way. way. I mean, no truer words. I think that was, uh, I believe that was Marilyn Monroe that yes. said that. <laughs> yes, specifically the part about the podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've gotten so many like funny emails and, yes, and comments from folks on Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been really great to get to know a lot of you guys. And yeah, um, thank you for spending a lot of time with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's It's been a wild ride. And we, again, we were sure it would just be like 12 people, six of whom we paid to... <laughs> to listen and the other six we were like blood related to or married to um so so this is really amazing that you guys have stuck with us for so long and we're so grateful that you have been hanging out with us it's been fun and um you know maybe we'll pop in in a future episode of mr information which is still going on as far as i know yeah we were we just showed up on a on a recent episode of triviality so you guys it's not going to be easy to get rid of us either but no no yeah you just keep an eye out We'll be around. We'll be around. And, you know, you could always email us at misinformation at gmail.com. That's not our email nope. address. <laughs> Don't email us there. It's misinfopod at gmail.com. It's been that long since I've, since I've handed out the email address. Misinfopod at gmail.com. We are still on Twitter, as long as that burning tower yeah. is still upright, uh, at misinfopod. And uh, we are on Facebook as misinformation, yep. colon, a, a trivia, trivia podcast. podcast. So, uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Yeah. And, you know, we'll catch you another time. Bye. Bye.